Eagles Entertainment. Eagle Eye in the Sky is fueled by Gatorade, the official sports drink of the Philadelphia Eagles. You're listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right of the week, and week one is in the books as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 269. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with Greg Cosell about the Eagles and their week one battle against the Washington football team. Obviously, uh, a disappointing start for the Eagles going into this year, right? They, they cough up the lead. They go up 17-0 in the first half. Washington bounces back with 27 unanswered points. We will talk about the good, the bad, what they can improve on going into Week 2. We're going to talk about all of that with Greg, and we're going to preview the Week 2 opponent in the Los Angeles Rams. They beat the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday night football, so they start off 1-0, but we'll talk all about that matchup once we get to our conversation with Greg. Before we get into the show, I uh, hope you guys all enjoyed last week's extra episode with Ben Fennell. Uh, uh, with Vinny Curry. Not only will Ben join me every single week here on the show, but he's also my co-host, co-host twice a week over on the Journey of the Draft podcast driven by AAA. Make sure you go subscribe to that show wherever podcasts can be found. But I thought Ben brought some great information last week on the show, as expected. And we were joined, like I said, by Vinny Curry late in the week as well. That will happen once again this week as Ben will come back. We'll be joined by another Eagles player. If you love the new format, I want to hear about it. If there's something that you want in either of these shows that we're not already doing, I want you to go on to our Apple Podcast page, Stitcher, leave us a rating, leave us a comment. If you've got a question, I promise that we will answer it here on the show. And if you don't know the relationship I've got with you, the listeners at home, I asked you about the, the to fill out that survey, right? Last December, last January, go on, fill out the survey. That's why we changed our format. We've got more episodes now because we listened to the advice that you guys gave us. One of the other things we did for you guys, one of the, you guys consistently, our listeners, especially on YouTube, who watch the show on YouTube every single week said, can we get video? Can we get video? Can we get video of the plays that you guys, that you and Greg are breaking down every week? Obviously, in the current COVID-19 platform, we can't necessarily uh, turn. We're limited staffing. We can't turn around video every week for the podcast for, so you can get it on Monday nights or Tuesday mornings. Can't do that with this current staffing. But what, we're, what we have done is I've created now an avenue where you can go and watch those plays on YouTube. So if you go onto YouTube, you can go search for Eagle Eye in the Sky on the Eagles YouTube page. And I have gone through all of the plays that uh, Greg and I are going to talk about tonight. They're all right there. All the plays that I cover as well on my Twitter page on Eagle at EaglesXOs, all those plays are now going to be right here on YouTube. So you can go find those plays on YouTube. You can scroll through. You can watch them as we're talking here with Greg. So if you're listening on YouTube, you've got that ability uh, to be able to do that as well. Hope you guys uh, enjoy that. And we'll, we'll kind of tweak that process moving forward as well. Really appreciate everybody that takes this time to uh, you know support this podcast on all of our different platforms, all of our different forms uh, of distribution for you guys at home. All right. Enough of this, enough of the the housework here. Let's dive now into our chat with Greg Cosell in Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. All right, well, back again for another edition of Chalk Talk here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, none other than NFL film senior producer Greg Cosell. Greg, uh, obviously a tough loss, disappointing loss for the Eagles here in week one. The first loss uh, in the Doug Peterson era in the opening weekend of the season, the first time they've ever started 0-1. I guess we'll start on the offensive side of the ball, Greg, and obviously the topic of discussion early this week is um, eight sacks. 
you know, three turnovers <laughs> for the Eagles offense, uh, you know, two interceptions, a sack fumble late. Um, I, I think when you look at the, the eight sacks in total, what were some of your takeaways? To, to me, personally, it's not like, you know, I think a lot of people point to like the Winston Justice game against the Giants, you know, a decade and a half ago. Um, it wasn't like, oh, man, like this one player just got beat six times. And for some, I think for some people, they might look at that and say that's a good thing. And for some people, you might look at that and say that's a bad thing. I'm interested just to get your takeaways uh, on those eight sacks in total. Well, as you know, as in most things like that, there's never one reason. I think you, you start with the O-line. It was obviously a group where you had Nate Herbig and Jack Driscoll making their first NFL starts. Uh, I think there were some busts. I can remember one where Driscoll had a bust early and then Ryan Kerrigan got in where Driscoll went to, to Troy Apke and, and left a first level defensive end alone. I think there was another one later in the game where I think it was Boston Scott. I don't want to. Yep, it was. It was Boston Scott where he well, had a bust. Fourth and four. Yep, it was fourth and four. I mean, very clear, like, you know, yep. Jason Kelsey goes left. That's Boston Scott's man, the linebacker coming right up the gut. A lot of people, you know, on social media, I think we're quick to point the finger at Carson Wentz, but uh, the running back, that's his responsibility no. in that play. So, so those are two busts I know for sure. I, I, I don't want to, uh, as I said, point the finger at anyone else. I think there were other plays where you have to look at Carson Wentz and say that he held the ball too long. You know, one of the positives and negatives about Carson Wentz is he can make spectacular plays, so he has a sort of a hero ball mentality. And I think there are times where the game situation demands that you can't get sacked. And the one that really stands out, of course, is the 13-yard sack that essentially took them out of field goal range when they had just had a really nice drive after the Redskins, I believe, had made it 17-14. And it was third down. And, you know, that's a play where, yes, no one was clearly open when you look at the tape, but you can't take a sack there. So I think there's a number of reasons for the eight sacks. Clearly, the Redskins felt as the game progressed, Fran, and, and you watched the tape as well, they increased their blitz frequency. They, they, they did, started to do two things. They had more sub-nickel versus the Eagles 12 personnel, and they increased their blitz frequency. And that made perfect sense given, you know, the Eagles' offensive line makeup and the fact that they were struggling uh, – whether it was struggling to protect or whether Carson Wentz was holding the ball at times too long. Yeah, and I think the, you know, the, the topic of Carson holding the ball too long, I think you did a good job covering it, is that you, you like that aggressiveness. And to me, like if you're saying which side of the ledger do you want to be on, uh, would you rather a guy be too aggressive versus uh, too conservative? I personally would lean towards the former. I want the guy that you have to kind of rein in a little bit as opposed to uh, having to try and light that fire under him and, and be more aggressive. Um, it's about walking that fine line of understanding, like, all right, like not just of, you know, the, the one that comes to mind is the, the second sack of the game. And it was they tried to throw the, the tight end screen pass to, to Dallas Goddard. Ryan Kerrigan came off. He read it. I remember perfectly. that very well, yes. Yep, it was off. Yeah. I believe it was off play fake. They had that jet yep. action, yep, going the other way. And they're going to try and uh, throw this tight end screen. Kerrigan reads it. And one of the other defensive backs reads it. So Carson just takes off. And he's, it looks like he just wants to kind of run up the middle, see if he can pick up one or two. At the end of the day, like, who cares if it was seven or eight sacks? Like if this one, if he had gone for a one yard gain, like, all right, he went for a one yard gain and it's not a sack, but it, it's still a, a busted play. It's more about just like saving yourself. 
right? Like it's more about like just protecting yourself from that. Um, I believe it was Dan Orlovsky had, had mentioned on social media, you know, um, you know, that was a similar play to that he got hurt on with Jadavion Clowney when he, when he took that shot at him in the playoff game. Yes. Uh, you know, and I think it's really just about, you know, having that understanding on a couple of those. Cause it, with the, you know, not all of them, I would say, man, Carson was holding it too long. It's those couple, it's the two or three where you're looking at it you're like, man, like, all right, understand that uh live to play another play you know if it's second if it's second and ten all right we'll we'll live with third and ten don't worry worry about trying to move the sticks uh, on this one um you know and that's i guess part of his continued evolution yeah and you'd like to think that you know now he's in his fifth year that he'd start to develop a better sense for that you know you, you know someone like andrew luck it took him five years six years to figure that out um but and we'll get to this obviously but at this point in time you know, uh, we, we assume Lane Johnson will be back this week because I think he pretty much went, went down to the wire this past weekend. So I assume he'll be back this week and that will certainly help. But I think teams will attack this Eagles offense with blitz until they they show that they can not only pick it up, but that they can make plays against it. Mm. And to me, Greg, let me ask you this question. I was um... – who was the piece? It was Chris Wessling. Chris Wessling, who does a great job for uh, NFL.com. He put out a list of, um, you know, how he ranks the, the quarterbacks in the NFL. And I know how much you love lists, but I was looking at the list. And <laughs> um, just one thing that stood out to me was, I believe it was eight of the top 10 and might've been nine of the top 11 quarterbacks. I would kind of put into a bucket and Carson's one of them of the guys that, can run around, make plays outside of structure, uh, can put the team on their back and make those plays. How do you, when you watch them, because, you know, I know after studying Russell Wilson over the years, studying Deshaun Watson since he's been in the league, studying Patrick Mahomes, and all these guys have varying levels of success and, uh, you know, what they've done in the league so far. When you look at Carson in the group of all these guys, and Aaron Rodgers, you know, we've seen Aaron Rodgers play be up and down. Um, When you look at those guys, how do you kind of gauge them against each other when it comes to understanding that level of, all right, like when to play for the next play? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm not worrying this question. No, I understand play. what you're saying. But I think, friend, there's two parts to that. Yeah. It, it, the NFL game now, I think, with defenses being as advanced as they are, as detailed as they are with pressure schemes and with speed, many would argue, and I'd probably now fall into that category, and it took me a while in my evolution of the quarterback position studying it, it is that there is a, a, almost a need for, for quarterbacks to have that secondary action improvisational ability. Yeah. And certainly Carson can do that extremely well. But the flip side of that is, and, and this was a great conversation I had with Kurt Warner, is you can't miss layups. You know, you can't yep. miss throws where the design of the play is there. You can't miss those throws. And I think that we saw Carson uh, this weekend miss too many of those. Now, I think he's always had a little bit of that tendency. This past Sunday probably was was an extreme example. And hopefully it was just one of those games that got away from him and he missed a few too many. Um as I said, he may always miss a few. That just may be the style of quarterback he is. And you can live with a few because he can do special things. But you just can't miss layups in this league because you don't get a lot of them. Right. I, I, and that's the, the thing I just find to be interesting is, um, you know, when you look at the, the, la- the landscape of the quarterback position right now and the, the quarterbacks, the, the young quarterbacks that are coming in and having that level of success, I feel have that 
that similar kind of profile. You know, it's it's gonna right. be it's so it's so much fun to be able to watch all these guys uh, develop because I remember just watching Russell Wilson and we play we ended up the Eagles played Seattle a handful of times early in his career and watching him over the years trying to develop and think like man like he still is playing this way and he's still they're still having success and like when when is he gonna hit that wall when is he gonna hit that he, he's gonna have those those bad games. But understanding, like, you know, yeah, he's, he's going to make those big plays for you. And I think Deshaun Watson – and to me, I think it's too – a lot of, like, media and fans, like, they'll see the highlights, right? They'll see the, 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 the clips that go viral on Twitter. They don't watch throw after throw, snap after snap, like you do on a weekly basis. So you get to see, like, yeah, like, these are the, the, the rise, the, the, the good stuff and the bad stuff with all of these guys. All of them no. have their moments. Uh, in, you know, in, and in and I would way. argue – I would argue, and, and I know this will probably be viewed as a bold take, but I would argue that Deshaun Watson is a very inconsistent player. He is, he's a spectacular yeah. player, but he's very inconsistent. I think what separates Russell Wilson, and most people when they think of Russell Wilson think of those outside of structure plays, but he is a precisely accurate passer. Right. His ball placement is outstanding. So when he does make throws from the pocket – I mean, this past weekend, he was 31 for 35, and one of them was a, a defined drop by uh, DK Metcalf. Mm -hmm. So he should have been 32 for 35. Uh, so, you know, Wilson is – he doesn't miss layups. And I think the key thing, you want your quarterbacks in today's NFL to have that second reaction ability. I think it's becoming somewhat of a necessity, but you just can't miss layups. Yeah, and it's going to be something that will continue. I, I love having this discussion, um, especially about the quarterback oh, it's position, fascinating. especially with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so we've, we've talked about uh, from that standpoint. Before we move on from the offensive line, what did you think of Jack Driscoll, Greg? I, I came away liking what I saw from and I, I, you know, I don't know if you, if you looked at him in, in a vacuum uh, as close as I did, but just for a rookie in his first start, uh, I thought he performed pretty admirably. You mentioned uh, the busted protection. That was, that was the first sack of the game. Um, for sure, he got kind of uh, distracted by that safety moving down the line of scrimmage and took his eyes off his assignment, but – Outside of that, I thought he more than held his own against Kerrigan, against Chase Young. Um, yeah, he had a couple reps. It wasn't always pretty, but I, I walked away feeling pretty good about what Jack Driscoll did. Yeah, I mean, I thought he had some good snaps. I, I Maybe I didn't see him quite at the level you did. I think he needs to be able to anchor a little better. I, I mean, I thought there were some plays where there was no sack involved where he got driven back a little bit. And uh, and then the ball came out, so uh, you know you didn't really notice that if you're just sure. watching the game on TV. But but I thought that he he battled, he fought. Uh, you know, I got the sense. It's funny watching the whole offensive line, including Jason Peters, that they competed, but they they were hanging on a lot for dear life. They competed, uh, and this is one of the best defensive lines with Washington that they might play all season. Uh, now, obviously, they're going to go against the Rams, who have some really good players, but. Uh, but overall, this is a really good defensive line that Washington brings to the table. But I thought Driscoll overall, you know, room for improvement. But but you're right. He did hold his own. Um, you know, I think that uh, it, it was a struggle at times, but he battled. And that's what you like to see. As you said, one thing I've learned over the years in evaluating offensive linemen, and I've tried to talk to offensive line coaches, it's not always about looking pretty. You've just got to battle and compete and get your guy blocked. That's all it is at the end of the day is, you know, making sure that your guy doesn't make the play uh, yep. you know, when it's all said and done. All right, let's get to some other aspects of this. Um, you know, we, we saw a few things here, and I want to go to this route first. Obviously, a ton of 12 personnel, um, which obviously is the identity of this offense uh, to a certain extent with Zach Ertz and with Dallas Goddard, uh, a huge day for Dallas Goddard. I loved what we saw. Two things. Opening drive, I thought was like – that was 
picture perfect. Like, that is exactly, in my mind, how this offense would work. You, you know, a lot yeah. of skill personnel. Uh, there was play action, the reduced formations. You had the vertical stretches. You had the, the tight ends creating some matchups. And to me, like, that was picture perfect. Then you get into the red zone, a great concept to get Zach Ertz open for a touchdown. I mean, to me, like, that opening drive was how it should look. Well, I don't know how you saw it, but I didn't think that play was designed to go to Ertz. I thought it was going to go to J.J. Yeah, I think it was designed to go to J.J., and I thought actually Wentz did a phenomenal job. See, there was an example where I thought that Wentz did a great, great job with his footwork and, you know, and just what he saw. Um, I thought that was a really good play by by Carson. Um, but, no, you're right about that opening drive. Two different play-action concepts to start on the 16-yarder to Goddard, the 19-yarder Jackson on the dagger concept. Yep. I mean, just – it was really a nice – it was it was well-schemed. Uh, so that that was kind of a nice looking drive, and that's you're right. That's what you'd ultimately like to see with consistency. And then a handful of times in this game, we saw um, them come out not with 12 personnel, but with 0-2 personnel with no backs, two tight ends, and three receivers, and they spread everybody out. They went empty. Talk, yeah. When you when you are able to have those that, that kind of personnel grouping with the two tight ends out in the field, and you can go empty, what does that do for Carson Wentz? Well, in an ideal world, it, it gives him a ton of pre-snap information. And that's what you're trying to do with your quarterback. You're trying to give him as much information as possible before the ball is snapped. Because when you go empty and spread the field horizontally, the defense has to respond to that. Uh, and, and therefore, you get a better sense, number one, of the coverage, and number two, if they're going to bring pressure, because they have to declare that, because they can't leave receivers wide open. Uh, now, I think when you go empty with Carson, you know, it, it's it's a little there's some pros and cons here, because if that first or throw is not there, because a lot of times when you go empty, you go with a timing rhythm throw. You don't normally don't go empty with a deep drop. Because you, so you have a five, you have a five man protection. You don't want to risk right. anything there. You want to make sure the ball comes out quick. And that's why the defense can't afford to disguise anything, because they know the ball's going to come out quick. Most right. Likely. Right. So, you know, with Carson, sometimes if it's not there, then he'll tend to hold it and, and that can lead to problems. But ideally, you're giving the quarterback a ton of information before the ball is snapped. And that's what you're looking to do. And then a lot of teams like to go empty. You know, it's interesting that the Eagles did it with two tight ends and three wide. A lot of teams like to go empty at a base personnel, which the Eagles you know, will do as well with a back because they'll get the defense to stay in base. And then that really gives the quarterback a lot of information. Yeah, and I guess the the big thing we saw the two big completions out of that look. You had the the third down conversion by Zach Ertz in the slot against Landon Collins. I thought it was a really good route on third and medium. Uh, was able to break open for a first down in the middle of the field. And then the obviously the, the big touchdown to Dallas Goddard in the slot fade. On both of them, you got a sense of okay, they're in they're in man to man coverage here. I'm going to take advantage of these matchups, whether it's uh, Ertz on the safety Collins or uh, Goddard one-on-one with the linebacker, Kevin Pierre-Lewis, working vertically down the field. Right, and that was – and I thought actually – now there's an example of a throw that I thought was a great throw because he was taking him away from the post safety because you yep. didn't want to throw it a little straighter up the field because then the post safety potentially gets involved and you don't want to do that. Exactly, and to me, um, you know, the, the other big part of that – is when you're looking at the way that those plays are constructed, more often than not, you're going to see a man beater on one side and a zone beater on the other. So when you talk about Carson getting information pre-snap, 
if he sees, okay, they're, they're queuing zone, I know I'm going to start on this side. If, if he gets a cue that they're working man, then I'm going to work on this side of the field. And right. it's all determined by what the defense shows. And, um, you know, that's one of the benefit, huge benefits of playing in, in empty sets. Um, no question. And, right. and obviously the slot fade versus uh, um, the linebacker it was uh, a classic case of just, uh, you know, Pierre Lewis was the linebacker. He, that was the man route. And, uh, and, and you know, you, you like that. You know, it was interesting. Yeah. It was interesting what the um, – what the Redskins did because they treated when Ertz and Goddard were on the field together and they played man, they treated Ertz as tight end one because they either had Collins or a corner on him. Sometimes it was, it was Moreau and they treated Goddard as tight end two because they put a linebacker on him, whether it was Pierre Lewis or Bostic. Yeah. And that's, I mean, hard to not argue with, um, you know, with uh, the Eagles making Goddard uh, such a big part, you know, having him having that level of production in that game for that reason. What do you think of Jalen Rager in his debut, uh, Greg? Obviously, he had the big 55-yarder, and that's a lot of what we saw from him at TCU, doing a lot of exactly that. Yeah, and, and I would have loved to have seen him on that one that was overthrown, not slow down uh, off yep. his, his break on the deep post because that actually was a perfectly thrown ball as well because Carson threw that ball. You know, he, he read it exactly. It was, it was quarters coverage. They ran a perfect route against quarters. It was a post out or a post corner. Um, and they got exactly what they wanted because you had the outside leverage corner. So Rager could go to the post. You had the safety Apke having to sort of settle because of the vertical route, the vertical stem. I think it was Zach Ertz, the vertical stem by Zach Ertz. I believe so, yep. And, and so he had to kind of wait because quarters is really a matchup zone. So if, if Ertz kept going vertically, then, then Apke would have had to match up man to man. So Apke kind of got caught in no man's land, but only Rager could tell you why he slowed down. Um, you know, maybe when they practiced it, they thought the ball would go to Ertz and, and Rager just thought, okay, I'm not getting the ball. But uh, the way it played out, it, the ball was correctly thrown to Rager and he slowed down. And it was a shame because it was actually, you know, watching the game on TV, you thought that Carson overthrew it, but watching the tape, he didn't overthrew it. He actually made a perfect throw. Yeah, it was certainly one of those plays where you'd say, all right, like, and it, it's good. You, you're going to see that from young players. We talked about it earlier with Driscoll. You, you get – the the example of what he can do you see that 55 yarder where um you know he really attacks the technique of ronald darby and gets him to stutter his feet and then gets that late separation down the field yeah ball tracking ability i mean everything about that was picture perfect and then you're going to see all right this is where this is a learning moment uh for jalen rager you know at the top of that route then you know he missed the block on the screen uh to the left side as well to, to greg ward so you saw uh you know some examples of learning moments for him and now it's about moving on and improving off of that. Um, and, and and the same point I would make with, with John Hightower. Yeah, who, sure. You know, I thought had a, str a bit of a struggle. In fact, I thought the second interception was on Hightower. Yep. Because, first of all, it was a hitch against a retreating corner. And Hightower took too many steps. He, he probably went about two yards too far on the hitch. And then he just sat there and never came back to the ball. So, obviously, it's an interception. It's on Wentz. And everybody says, you know, and believe me, I don't think Carson played anywhere near a, a a good ball game. And I think you would agree if we're being honest, but, uh, but that was not on him. That was on Hightower. Yeah. It was, a, it's one of those routes where it's like, you, you could see he put his foot. It's like you, exactly what you said. He had to put his foot in the ground a couple times at the top of the break. He just didn't have a clean, uh, you know, top of that route break. Um, and now by the time he did get out, I mean, Moreland was on top of him and he didn't have the, well, ability no, and they to made the point on TV. Yeah. 
Yeah, they made the point on TV. I think it was Daryl Johnson said Moreland was sitting on the route, which when you see the tape, nothing was further from the truth. Moreland was actually retreating. It right. was actually a perfect call for that. I mean, they didn't necessarily know he's going to retreat, you know, but he was retreating. It was the right throw. It's just Hightower took two you know, went probably two yards too deep. And then he, he did not present himself as Tory Holt once told me as flat and friendly to the quarterback. I like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a good little uh, axiom to take out of this. Let's go to the defensive side, Greg. And um, to me, the, the big number from this game, Darius Slay, Terry McLaurin, McLaurin had one catch for 21 yards when he was lined up man to man with Darius Slay. And to me, like, that's exactly what, the Eagles were looking for when they acquired Darius Slay this offseason uh, was someone who could match up. Uh, it was a handful, or I didn't need to chart the exact number. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure if you did in terms of man-to-man, um, but one catch for 21 yards well, uh, is what you're looking for. He predominantly lined up over McLaurin in both man and zone coverage concepts. The only time he didn't match up was when McLaurin was in the slot. Um, and there was a wide receiver outside of McLaurin. There were a couple of times he matched up to him when there was a running back or a tight end outside of him, but that's still, that's a different scenario. Right. Um, I thought the Eagles played, you know, a mix of man and zone. Slay played a, a lot of off coverage. I, I, maybe you recall, I don't recall a ton of press man. I mean, I, 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 I don't there were think a few the, where, where it was just Slay in press man and everybody else yeah. seemed a little bit backed off. Yeah. And then you could well be right. Um, but it did not strike me as a press man game for the Eagles as a whole. I felt like they played a lot of off coverage. Um, in fact, I thought their whole approach was really built on a four man D line rush playing coverage behind it. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, uh, like I said, I wasn't charting each coverage snap. Um, I didn't get the sense that there was one coverage either man or zone that was a high percentage extreme um i know you and i spoke before we the, the podcast and you felt they did play a good amount of man but like i said i didn't think it was like 80 or 90 percent man maybe it was 60 percent man and 40 percent right. zone because i did think they played a good amount of zone as well yeah no, they definitely mixed some things up, and I, I thought we saw some good stuff from uh, Avante Maddox. He had that really impressive pass breakup on the mesh concept on third down. That was in, I think that would have been off-man coverage. Um, you know, I'm trying to think uh, of some of the other big plays by some of the DBs. Um, but, yeah, it was, it was definitely a good mix of both man and zone. Uh, Jalen Mills, I thought, showed up a couple of times. Rodney McLeod had a, a couple of nice uh, stops from depth. You go to the, the linebacker level, I thought the, that Duke Riley and Nate Gary both uh, flashed good moments coming downhill in the run game. Washington only averaged 2.2 a carry, so uh, you know Eagles continue to take care of business uh, with opposing rushing attacks. I, to me, like the defensive line was, um, you know, and to, your po- to your point, look, Dwayne Haskins completed 17 passes. Uh, you figure, you know, all the different screens and things of that nature off the, the, the jet action, the play action, uh, they created some easy layup throws for him. It didn't seem to me like he ever really got comfortable. There was that one drive in the fourth quarter where it seemed like he was able to get into a rhythm. Outside of that, I didn't really feel that Haskins was able to really get into a strong rhythm throughout the course of the game. No, I would agree with that. And I think that probably, uh, even though they won, I would imagine that last night, Wes Martin woke up in the middle of the night saying Malik Jackson a few times. That first Uh, bull rush on that first third down, Greg. Oh, well, there were a number of Malik Jackson had about four plays against yeah. West Martin where he just totally dominated him physically. Um, so, you know, Malik Jackson stood out to me. 
I mean, I think if you're being honest watching the tape, I don't think Fletcher Cox played particularly well. I think he got moved a little bit at times in, in, on double teams. Um, I think he's going to have to play better for this defense to be what I think they'd like it to be because I don't think they want to be a big blitz defense because I'm not sure who their blitzers are. You know, And I think that you know because it was a pandemic offseason, I think a lot of things we're going to have to wait and see how it plays out. I could be dead wrong. They could find out in two weeks they have a great blitzer somewhere, and I just don't know who it is yet. Um, but I think in this particular game, they were banking on their four-man rush to be a big factor, and I don't think it was a big factor. You know, the one sack that Sweat had, the, the sack forced fumble, came on their only snap of the game where they played with five defensive linemen lining up, you know, across the board and what we call a diamond front and six defensive backs. They did not have a linebacker on the field on that play. Right. Yeah. To me, like, uh, you know, that was some of the, some of the things we expected to see from that front this year. We saw it on that one play. Um, I agree with what you initially said about the defense clearly coming into this game. They said, we're going to rush with four. We're going to play coverage and we're going to see if we can make Dwayne Haskins beat us. Um, and tough to argue with that, with that strategy. You, you know, you look at the, the short fields that Washington was able to work with. Uh, they were able to convert and, you know, they were, I think three or four in the red zone, um, you know, and kudos to them. They had a, but there was a busted coverage uh, defensively on the one touchdown um, that the Eagles would certainly like to have back. Um, but outside of that, I mean, like I said, I thought that the defense was able to, to, you know, do their job for, throughout the course of the game. They just, they dealt with too many short fields, um, you know, and that was, I think, a, a huge, you know, pivotal point in this game. Um, Greg, let, let's talk a little bit about the LA Rams because obviously they, they come to town this week. Uh, big, big matchup. They get a big win on Sunday Night Football against the Dallas Cowboys. This offense, no Todd Gurley, obviously, and, and he's been banged up throughout the course of the last couple of years anyway. When you look at Jared Goff at this stage of his development, I guess especially now that we've we talked about Carson Wentz in the beginning of this discussion, where do you view Jared Goff at this point uh, of his you know, development throughout the course of his career going into his fifth year? Well, they're totally different players. You know, Goff is, is a pocket quarterback. He's a pretty thrower when he has time and he's comfortable. Um, you know, I did a deep dive on him this, this summer watched a ton of golf and, and he can make some big time throws. Now he's your classic pocket quarterback in the sense that if you can get pressure on him, you can get bodies around him and make him uncomfortable. His efficiency will drop dramatically. You saw the interception on Sunday night where they got bodies around him and he had to throw the ball quicker than he wanted to. And it was intercepted. Um, but they are very good. Sean McVay, they're, they're, there's a, a real good mix and marriage here between Sean McVay and Jared Goff because Sean McVay does such a nice job with their concepts, with a lot of play action, with a lot of play action boot, with a lot of misdirection concepts. They create things for Jared Goff. You know, I've never been a believer. You hear the term system quarterback a lot. Every quarterback is theoretically a system quarterback. And, and Sean McVay's approach to pass offense and to offense in general really fits Jared Goff exceedingly well. And Goff, for the most part, is an efficient player. I mean, you mentioned at the top of that, that when you talk about him as an arm talent, when he's asked to just grip it and rip it, I mean, he can put the ball wherever it needs to be, you know, where he's throwing the ball oh, over, no over underneath defenders, you know, throwing it in stride to guys working down the seam, you know, the, the, the deep ball. Um, you know, it's obviously it's a vertical stretch offense and all the different things that they do. Um, you know, he, he can make all of those throws, um, you know, but it's certainly a different kind of quarterback when you talk about uh, his ability to work outside of that structure. But um, no, when, when, they're, when they're executing at a high level, 
I mean, they can move the ball on anybody. And obviously the run game uh, had when they were at their peak, run game was the foundation. It's about trying to find that again. And with Gurley not there, uh, you know, obviously, look, Malcolm Brown ran for over 100 yards this past week against Dallas. Um, they drafted Darrell Henderson last year in the third round. They drafted Cam Akers in the second round this year out of Florida State. Uh, you know, they're hoping to find some of that juju uh, with one of these guys and hope that they can really kind of get things going. But I know McVay has said multiple times this offseason that they plan to utilize more of a committee approach, at least early on. Yeah, but, you know, it's funny. They they don't need the run game to be dominant in the sense of yardage. They don't need right. a 1,500 yard back. It's the conceptual approach because they're big on outside zone. And you have to think of it this way. When you go outside zone, what do defensive linemen do initially? They move laterally because they, they're defending the run. They're defending what they see. They're defending keys. You know, it, no – as I've discussed many times, no one sits there on defense and says, well, gee, the running back has eight carries for 10 yards, so we don't have to defend that. They're not, they're not thinking that way. They're defending keys. And what, so what the outside zone run game does and all the action, you know, off of that with the pass game is it minimizes pass rush. Uh, at both the first and the second level. And therefore you have Goff who can drop back comfortably and work the field. And uh, they do such a nice job with that. And, and, you know, I think to me, you know, Goff is, is, you know, he's some will argue he has limitations because there are certain things he can't do, but in the context of this offense, he fits very, very nicely. It's a highly schemed offense and he can run it well. So the Eagles didn't play the Rams last year. They played them in 2018. They played them in 2017. You and I have talked uh, about that McVay offense and what makes it go, the elements of that scheme. But real quick, as just a refresher for our listeners, it's a lot of tight formations. Everybody lined up inside the numbers. Um, and we'll, I want to like almost take this like bit by bit. When you lined everybody up inside the numbers, and the Eagles did a good amount of this on Sunday against Washington, especially uh, early in that, in that game, what is the benefit of that? What is the what is the goal of the offense by keeping everybody in the in tight like that? Well, it benefits you in a number of ways. Number one, it benefits you in the run game because your receivers are in position to block, and they've got very good blocking receivers. Robert Woods is a terrific blocker, so you your receivers are in position to block for the run game. Number two, it makes it much more difficult when you get to the pass game for the uh, defense to press. Uh, so they tend to play off. And also when you line up your receivers, particularly if you're going to line up in a three by one set and the all three receivers are tight in a bunch type formation, you end up with a situation where you get a lot of traffic, a lot of rubs if you're an offensive player, picks if you're a defensive player, but you make <laughs> it very difficult for defenders to work through traffic. So it, 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 it really defines routes quickly within the timing and rhythm of the pass game. And that's what Goff is. He's a timing rhythm thrower. So if he can hit that back foot and things are defined, then the ball comes out in rhythm and he's very comfortable and he's accurate. So, you know, it works. All these reduced splits work really effectively in both the run game and the pass game. And one aspect of that, too, um, I remember talking about this when McVay was on the staff in Washington. Kyle Shanahan was the offensive coordinator, uh, you know, with all the things that they would do with RG3 with those condensed looks. 
you know, you had to respect the, the run threat, going back to what you said about all that outside zone action. So you all, almost always kind of dictated to the offense, or to the defense, rather, to play single high because they had to keep Correct. that safety down. So now you're really cutting in half. All right, this is what a defense uh, is able to play against us from a coverage standpoint. If we know they have a single high safety, we're going to run route concepts that attack a single high safety uh, and not split the field in half that way. Yeah, and, and they're really good at a couple of things in their route concepts. They're really, they, they do the flood concept, which is a three-level stretch to one side of the field. A lot of teams do it. It's how you get to it. Teams have expanded over the years because the concept has been in existence for a long time, obviously, um, but it's how teams get to it. The uh, Rams are very good at getting to it in multiple ways. Another thing they're really good at, I think they're the best in the league at this, Fran, and it's a zone concept. It's a zone beater concept, but I think they're the best in the league of what we call high low concepts where they run two routes. One route is a short route, which grabs the eyes and eats up underneath coverage. And then the second route come, goes behind it as an intermediate route. And it's in, it's behind the underneath coverage and front of a safety or both safeties, depending on the nature of the zone coverage. And they've eaten up teams with it. For anybody who wants to take a look at it at its best, take a look at Cooper Cup last year against the Cincinnati Bengals. They just ran high-low concepts. It was ridiculous. I believe Cup had 220 yards receiving in that game. Yeah, it, it's uh... – Certainly one of the, the huge staples of that offense and the foundation. And when you're a, a big-time zone defense against that team, you have to be alert for, you know, all of those different high-low concepts. Um, you know, the one that they ran with, uh, with I believe it was Robert Woods who ended up catching it uh, the other night against Dallas. was Yes, there was a high-low against Dallas. C Collinsworth talked about it. He didn't use the term high-low, but it's, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Uh, so you talk about the tight splits, the high-low concepts. Uh, Jet action. There's so much yeah. talk about jet sweep action, and what that's a huge state. You know, I know that's something that uh, McVeigh uses a lot of. What is the benefit of jet sweep action? Which, by the way, they also hand it to the jet. Uh, I would say more often than most teams. But I don't have that. Uh, I don't have that down. But that's anecdotally. It seems like they they give the ball on the jet a little bit more off more often. Yeah. I mean, look, it's all part, again, of creating misdirection, deception. You're grabbing the eyes of defenders. You know, in this league, you take one step the wrong way and you could be out of position. So it's all part of that. You know, so much of the NFL now, and the Rams certainly do this almost as well as any team, so much of the NFL now offensively, and maybe it's college, the influence of college, maybe it's just the evolution of offense, but so much of it now – has to do with misdirection and deception. You know, years and years ago, everybody just spoke about execution. And obviously you still speak about execution, but misdirection and deception is so much a part of offensive football now. And the Rams are very, very good at it with base concepts. Yeah, that is certainly uh, one of the things that they do uh, at a very high level. Screen game, uh, another big thing, I think, yes. especially the receiver screen game. Um, something I know you'll be talking about this week on Eagles game plan. Um, it's not just to the back though like we said it's a cooper cup robert woods get the ball get the ball in those guys hands as fast as possible and I'm, I'm sure you took a look at some of their offense from last year but down the stretch by the way on the stretch from weeks 13 to 17 last year 
the only team that played with two tight ends more than the Eagles was the Rams. And a lot of people are not aware of that because everybody thinks about the Rams as what we call 11 personnel, meaning three wide receivers. Um, I did not chart their game this week, so I don't know what their breakdown was of a three wide versus two tight. But down the stretch last year, they played two tight ends a lot. And the reason I mention that is they had this really cool play, which I always wanted to break down. We never got a chance to. Maybe we'll be doing it this year. They had this really cool play. It's kind of a filter screen to Tyler Higby. You know, I'm sure you saw it last year if yeah, you took yeah. a look. It's a really cool concept because it 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 it's almost off sometimes a flood concept and it brings a fourth guy to the zone side and there's no one who can really deal with him. And they kind of, you know, and, and they throw it to Higby and he'd have all this room to run and he'd get 20 plus yard explosive plays off it. I think he had three or four or five of them just in the final four or five weeks down the stretch last year. So we talked a little bit about the the conceptual aspects of this offense. Let's quickly talk about the the personnel in the terms of the pass catchers. We've talked about Cooper Cup, Robert Woods, uh, Josh Reynolds is has been there a couple of years. They just drafted Van Jefferson uh, in the second round of this draft out of Florida. He had a big catch the other night uh, down the field on a fade route. Uh, when you look at this personnel from the, in terms of the receivers and the tight ends as well, Gerald, Gerald Everett, a kind of an oversized receiver and used in a lot of different ways. They put him into the backfield as a lead blocker uh, the other night against Dallas. You t- just talked about Higby. They've got some, some you know, impressive pieces offensively, and they spread the ball around. And you have to talk about Cup on third down. He had a couple of big third down catches the other night, but last year he was ridiculous on third down. He had 37 catches on third down in 2019 for over 15 yards a catch and seven touchdowns just on third down. He's really their go-to guy on third down. But to me, Robert Woods, you know, he, you, you won't talk about him as a top five receiver in the league because he's not the, the big time explosive vertical guy and all that. But I think Robert Woods, when you look at his complete game, is as solid a receiver as there is in the league. He's one of the more underrated players, regardless of position in the NFL, I think. I would agree with that. And I guarantee he's not overlooked by defensive coordinators. Right. No question. Uh, Let's get to the offensive line. We talked a lot about uh, that matchup last week with Washington facing the Eagles. Um, You know, Andrew Whitworth uh, at left tackle, um, you know, obviously is up there in years, but is still getting it done. Joseph Noteboom, a younger guy that was a college tackle at TCU coming off the knee injury last year, but he's the starter at left guard. They shifted Austin Blythe uh, into center. He's kind of built similarly to Kelsey. Um, in that he's, you know, smaller. Uh, they had him at guard last year. I don't think it really worked all that well at guard. So uh, definitely more of a better fit at center. They traded for Austin Corbett last year. He slid out to right guard. And then Rob Havenstein at right tackle. What are your overall uh, evaluations, I guess, on on this offensive line? Well, I think they made a good move in getting Corbett because I think last year they got stuck with little guys playing inside because they had Blythe and I believe Brian Allen was playing center because Blythe was playing right guard. And, you know, it's really hard in this league to play with little guys inside. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's a clear improvement. Corbett was, I believe, originally a second round pick. Was he not for Cleveland? I believe so. I remember a lot of people liked him coming out of college. And, uh, um, you know, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, he'll be the full-time starter at right guard. But, uh, you know, obviously, if this offense works the way it's supposed to, there's such a rhythmic feel to it that the ball does come out. Um, it's pretty amazing that Woodworth is still playing at the position that he's playing, given his age and his his uh, the mileage on his tread, so to no speak. No question. Yeah, no question. It, to me, like uh, we've talked about this before, 
setting strong edges in the run game, pivotal uh, against this offense, just to really kind of disrupt the flow, not just of the run game, but the play action pass. Um, You know, it's going to be important in those matchups off the edge against both uh, Whitworth and Havenstein. So you look at the DNs, Brandon Graham, uh, hopefully he is good to go uh, for this game. Doug Peterson did say that he was in the protocol uh, during his Monday press conference. Josh Sweat, I thought had a good game in terms of setting the edge this past week against Washington. Uh, He'll need to do more of that in this matchup. We'll see if Derek Barnett uh, is able to make his return as well. Uh, the matchups you would look at, Austin Corbett will see most of his reps against Fletcher Cox. Uh, Joseph Noteboom will see most of his reps against Malik Jackson. Uh, so we'll see about Javon Hargrave uh, and his return as well. But uh, It would not surprise me to see Jackson play a lot of significant one technique this week because mm-hmm. I think you might want him on Austin Blythe at times as well. I think that's a bit of a, a matchup that favors the Eagles. Yeah, that would be uh, certainly something to watch. We'll see if they do a little bit more of that five over five this week uh, You know, in this matchup. Greg, they've got a, a new defensive scheme. Wade Phillips is out. Brandon Staley is in. Uh, young guy, comes from the Vic Fangio tree. Um, they've hyped up a lot of the, the, the how important versatility is in that scheme. Tell us about Vic Fangio and just the what are the staples of that uh, defensive scheme? You know, what, how is he profiled going not just now in Denver, but Chicago, San Francisco, and everywhere he's been? Well, I think with Vic, one of the things you always look at, and, and sometimes it's hard when you're watching tape to figure it out, is just what he does with his safeties. Because his safeties, what they do pre-snap and then post-snap can be a difficult read. Um, you know, I think that's a real critical piece to what he does. Now, it'll be, we don't know for sure what Brandon Staley will do. I will say this, in just watching week one against the Cowboys, I thought they were very multiple in a lot of the things they did up front. Um, you know, I thought they had those bare front looks where they had a five across. Then they went to a lot of uh, four-man D-line rushes. They did those tilted fronts where you have, and they did this out of dime, where you had three defensive linemen to one side of the center. You had a wide nine end opposite the the three uh to the uh, to one side of the center you had the linebacker micah kaiser kind of a wild card moving all around um greg they would know, line the one, up leonard floyd like in st louis sometimes like he was coming out he's going to come out right. at pff as a slot corner for some of these uh for some of these players yeah and you know and then what they did with Jalen ramsey is he he was pretty much the boundary corner so he did not match up specifically to one player He was the boundary corner. As the game progressed against Dallas, he played a lot more press man. Um, What they did a lot with him as the game progressed is they pretty much, it was almost like the Revis coverage where he literally played zero man. And they gave them a ton more options with what they did with the rest of their defense and the rest of their secondary. So, um, you know, I thought it was, it was kind of a fun watch because they did a lot of different things. And then of course you have Aaron Donald and, He's pretty good. I mean, he's one of those guys that uh, playing along the defensive line, it's hard to find. And I talked about this with Matt Burke in the summer, uh, the Eagles defensive line coach in the, the uh, coaches masterclass segment I did. You're always looking for linemen that are able to execute pass rush moves, you know, use their hands while still gaining a lot of ground with their feet. And it seems like Aaron Donald right. is as good as anybody in that arena. He is always gaining ground and his hands are so quick and so violent you can't you can't get a beat on him right no he's you know he's got kind of almost he makes it look easy like he has a great arm over move and it just happens so quickly that sometimes it doesn't seem like you even see it 
but then he's so powerful. You know, what always amazes me with him, couple, two things. Number one, he, for his body type, he can get skinny. And number two, his ability after he beats one guy, because often he's double teamed, so sometimes he'll beat a guard and then the center might be there, or he'll beat a guard and then a back is coming to help out, is the power he's able to generate with almost no velocity and momentum, just sheer power. And and like I said, when he does that against a center, that's against a guy who might weigh 300 pounds, but he can just generate so much power in such a small amount of space. One thing I'll be interested in when you talk about this matchup with Aaron Donald against this offensive line, you know, last week, it's not like when you look at Washington where it's like, oh, man, you, you've got to handle this guy. Like, I think you've got enough talent that's widespread across the board there. Um, you know, that, you know, it's not like you'd have to take care of one guy with, with the Rams. They've got some other good players along that front, but obviously Aaron Donald, he's the game wrecker. So, you know, with how they've moved him around, this past week in Dallas, what they did with him in years past as well with Wade Phillips, it makes it tough to kind of load. You got to you got to figure all that out pre-snap in terms of how you're going to adjust your protection, figure out if you're how you're going to account for him. Uh, you know, slides, chips, uh, all yeah. those different kinds of things to try and make sure you're. It's it's tougher to do that with an interior guy than with a pure edge rusher. Well, and if Nate Herbig is at right guard again, I would expect you're going to see that tilted front to that side of the Eagles offensive line because even if Lane Johnson's back you're going to want to make Herbig have to think through all that and react to it because normally when you're lined up with that tilted front with three to one side of the center you almost always get some kind of stun concept to that side and I think you know they'll make Herbig have to deal with that and and it's a tough deal it's a tough assignment and not only look as 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 we've talked about Donald could be part of the three men to one side or he could be uh, the wide nine defensive end. He's that good. He can line up as a, as a wide nine defensive end pass rusher. Yeah, he got snaps outside the tackle the other night against Dallas, and there's there's good shots of him doing it uh, in 2019 as well. Uh, he's just got that level of versatility. Uh, the team acquired a couple guys in that front seven this offseason. They went and signed Ashawn Robinson away from Detroit. He is injured. He's on NFI, so he is not going to play in this game. Uh, they went and acquired Leonard Floyd to replace uh, Dante Fowler, who they lost in free agency. They lost a lot in free agency, to be honest. You lose Corey Littleton, who was a good player at linebacker. Uh, they lost Eric Weddle, uh, who they're replacing with some young guys, uh, namely Taylor a rap on the back end. Um, Dante Fowler, they lost. Nikel Roby Coleman, obviously, here in Philadelphia now. Um, so a bunch of guys from that defense no longer there. But one guy, Greg, who they almost lost, and he failed the physical in Baltimore, but and ended up going back. I was pretty impressed going back and watching as much of their defense as I did from 2019. Michael Brockers, um, yeah. he's a good player. He's, a well, good player. he's always been a good player. Yeah. He's just not a sack guy. Yeah. But he's, he's, he's a good player. Um, I'll tell you a guy that uh, that flashed to me on tape, and he got more and more snaps as the game progressed because they went away from that five across bare front and played a lot more four down line, two linebackers. I thought Kenny Young flashed, yeah. um, number 41. You know, he, he was drafted by Baltimore. He was obviously traded. Um, he was in the Marcus Peters trade, right? He was in the Marcus Peters trade. That's correct. Um, you know, he's an athletic kid. I remember watching him at U- UCLA, uh, you know, this clear athleticism to his game. I thought he flashed on Sunday night and we'll see if they continue to, you know, play more of that four, two, five and get him more snaps. But, uh, but I thought he's got good quickness, good movement ability. He's a good athlete. Yeah. It's a, it's a 
it's a good defense up front in terms of what they're doing schematically. Obviously, it's a new scheme. They only have one uh, game's worth of tape on them, but uh, you know, plenty to kind of figure out there. Real quick on the back end, you talked about Jalen Ramsey, um, the safety duo. You talked about how important safety play has been for Vic Fangio in the past. Uh, we're going to assume that it's the, it's the same for Brandon Staley. When you look at John Johnson, who – He's turned into a better player than, than I imagined he would be coming out of Boston College. And then another guy who I absolutely loved coming out of college, and that's Taylor Rapp, who was last year's Although he's round the, pick. He was, he's not the starter. He's the dime player as of right. now. And they started the rookie from Ohio Sarah. State, Jordan Fuller, right. who, you know, he was one of those safeties to me. Because, you know, very often, as you know, Fran, because we do so much draft work, safeties have become more important in the league but they're still not drafted super high unless people view them as having kind of a special skill set and fuller certainly did not have a special skill set but he's a big kid he's smart he's savvy um you know he got beat a couple times at ohio state by tight ends and i think that scared people off because you know he's not a great athlete but i think there's a savviness to his game and it'll be interesting to see if he maintains that job or if indeed taylor rapp were to win that job as the season progressed. But quite frankly, I was surprised, you know, when I put the game on on Sunday night that Taylor Rapp was not the starter, that yeah. he was only the dime player, because quite frankly, I expected Rapp to be the starter. I, I agree. After the, after they lost Weddle, I kind of thought that Rapp would be that guy that kind of step in there, um, you know, and take that mantle. Greg, it'll be a fun matchup. Uh, appreciate the time here joining us once again on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade. We will uh, talk to you again next week. Do we need to throw out uh, week two that it's a must win, uh, Fran, or are we too early for that? I mean, you're the only person that has said that on this podcast, so I'm going to throw it out, yes. <laughs> well, thanks. thanks, Greg. All right, Fran, thanks. Great stuff from Greg, and you can follow on Twitter just like I do, at Greg Cosell. And while you're at it, I'm at EaglesXOs. That's where I post all the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's and O's content that we produce at PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on all forms of social media. That is one way to support the show, but the other way is to go on to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, leave us a rating, or even leave us a comment. I wanted to give a shout-out today to a couple of people that went on and left questions that I wanted to make sure we answered here. BirdGang72 left, I say, five five-star review saying they love the show. One question, if iron sharpens iron, what is the purpose of ones facing the twos in training camp? Wouldn't ones versus ones be more beneficial to the starters? And obviously we're out of training camp at this point, but I thought I want to answer this question. It's a good question, Bergang. It depends on the on the period, really. If you're going to go full scrimmage, uh, and if you're going, you know, that's where you're typically going to go good versus good. You also might flip it and go twos versus ones because you want to see what your twos, your backups, look like going up against your first team. So that's one benefit of it. Then obviously there are the days where we call them the 10-10-10 practices where they're essentially uh, like a hyper walkthrough. They're, it's set up for the offense in one period to have success, then the next period for the defense to have success. So you're going to have your backups working against your starters to serve basically as a look team in that instance. So, yeah, when they're going just a regular, hey, we're going to go seven on seven, the starters are going to be going off on both sides of the football. But when it's a, a period where maybe you want to kind of switch things up and you want to take a look at the backups against the starters, you might do that there. Or if it's kind of a look period, a scouting period, then you might say, okay, or, or a self-evaluation period, I should say, that's where you're going to look and see, let's get the backups in there against the starters and give us a good look for what exactly we're hoping to accomplish uh, on the field that day. So good question there from Bird Gang. One more question here from Treasy R. Left a five-star review saying they love the podcast. Seeing as how often the Eagles use a 
a third safety as a do-it-all role on defense. And assuming that Jalen Mills and Rodney McLeod are the starters, who is more likely to take those snaps, Will, Will Parks or Kayvon Wallace? And obviously this was before Will Parks' injury. Uh, the one guy that has, seems to have taken a lot of those snaps was Marcus Epps, who took a lot of those snaps uh, on Sunday against Washington. Uh, remember, he was acquired on waivers from the Minnesota Vikings last year uh, when the Eagles re- released um, Andrew Sandejo. He went back to Minnesota. Minnesota waived Marcus Epps. Marcus Epps ended up here. So essentially, it was a trade for Andrew Sandejo. But a young safety, rangy, good athlete, had a nice summer. He was banged up a little bit. Um, but Marcus Epps uh, got a lot of reps uh, with the sub package this past week against Washington. Kayvon Wallace, he had a nice summer as well. But when you're, whenever you're talking about a rookie, Playing the safety spot, it's always a little bit of a transition. It takes a little bit of time. So even though Kayvon was around the football a lot over the course of the fall or over the course of the summer, you want to give those guys as much time as possible. Don't throw them into the fire, um, you know, especially playing at the safety spot. Jim Schwartz talked about that in press conferences as well. Uh, you know, When you're talking about linebacker and safety in particular, the guys that are playing in the middle of the field, uh, you would say you want to give those, time, those guys as much time as possible. So thanks so much to BirdGang72, Treasy R, and all of you out there just a real, real quick reminder. Look, we've got our new in-season podcast schedule here on Eagles Entertainment. I told you uh, the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, we're now twice a week. I told you that we'll be back later this week once again with Ben Fennell. Um, you can catch Ben and I twice a week as well over on the Journey to the Draft podcast, driven by AAA. That's going to be released every Tuesday and Thursday in-season. The Eagles Insider podcast with Dave Spadaro, that's going to go back uh, to being three times a week. Hopefully you caught the post-game show this week with Dave. Uh, he's going to have sound from players, from coaches, to so make sure you want to subscribe to the Eagles Insider podcast podcasts wherever podcasts can be found and then lastly there's the Eagles Update channel which you can subscribe to as well wherever podcasts can be found those are going to be short kind of news updates that uh, you can start your day with you can end your day with uh, each and every day starting Monday through Saturday you can find all of those again wherever you find your podcasts all of those podcasts are going to be there so special thanks to Greg Cosell and all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcast offerings on PhiladelphiaEagles.com all that being said I think that'll do it another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade. For everybody here at the Duffy House, I am Fran Duffy. We will talk to you later this week.